Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big news impacting a lot of people throughout the country. Capital One has been hit by a data breach which compromised the personal information of over 100 million people. The thing that makes this breach different than others is that it was the work of one hacker named Paige Thompson, rather than an outside group with nation-state connections. We spoke to Kate Fazzini, she's a cybersecurity reporter at CNBC, for more on how this information was stolen. First of all, it's, it's important to note, of course, that these are all allegations right now. And I say that especially because this all happened very quickly. The arrest was just within the last few days. The warrant was served this week. And we're still learning a, a lot about the single individual who uh, was, is said to have done this. Ms. Thompson is an engineer who formerly worked for Amazon. And she is said to have taken this information, posted it on GitHub, which is where a lot of engineers usually share code and things like that and not stolen personal information. Another user of GitHub saw it, flagged it to Capital One, and that's where we find ourselves today. Now, Capital One has said that they don't think any of this information has been used for fraud. Obviously, it's hard to tell what the motivations are, but it's not like Ms. Thompson was trying to sell it. She was just putting it out there on the Internet. It's actually a little bit unclear. Like, it just seems as if she was sort of celebrating the fact that she had stolen this stuff. But yes, you're correct in that uh, Capital One and I believe the FBI now have, have said that they don't believe this information was sold or picked up by anyone outside of this original alleged criminal who's been arrested. Give us the background on how she actually did this, because you mentioned she posted on GitHub and an anonymous emailer sent it to Capital One, but she was all over social media kind of boasting about this. She really led some of the breadcrumbs right to her. That's right. Capital One uses Amazon Cloud for many different things, including running their web applications. So this was uh, a configuration flaw in the firewall of one of those web applications. So it was something that was controlled by Capital One, but within the Amazon cloud environment, uh, if that makes sense. So this is what she was able to exploit. I uh, have referred to her as an insider uh, in some cases because she did work for Amazon at one point and had some of that sort of inside knowledge into how the company works that could possibly have helped her do this. I mean, I know that there's going to have to be some mental health experts that get involved in this. She was saying that she was trying to check herself into a mental institution and she's wearing basically a bomb vest over this because she's doxing all of this Capital One information. Like She basically knew what she was doing at some point, it seemed like. Yeah, this is what is going to be a really interesting sort of soul-searching exercise for the big banks because, you know, they've invested a lot of resources and a lot of money into protecting themselves against the kinds of threats that have been commoditized, so nation-state threats, threats from criminal groups, which, because there's a pattern to them, um, you can use a lot of AI, you can use a lot of technology tools to predict when those things are going to happen. What you can't predict is when somebody is going to, for lack of a better word, lose it or have some kind of mental health issue or just decide one day that they don't like what the company is doing and take personal action themselves. And that is much harder to predict. It's actually very hard to protect against. 
What kind of you know new security measures do banks and, and other companies take against something like this? I think Capital One has said that this might cost them $150 million, which doesn't seem that much. How do they protect against singular actors? That's actually the real question. There are a couple of different products that companies use to protect against actual insiders. So people working there who might be stealing information and emailing it to themselves at home, those kinds of activities, most big companies today are flagged. But when it comes to something like this, where somebody just has maybe a little bit of insider knowledge and the will to really go in and try to do something destructive, there's not a lot that can be done other than, of course, having configured that firewall correctly in the first place. For all the charges that Thompson is facing, they said that if sentenced, she could face five years in prison and a fine of $250,000. Kate Fazzini, cybersecurity reporter for CNBC and author of Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. Thank you very much for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much, Oscar. We have a new baby boy at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. A baby southern white rhino was just born, and the program that helped bring him into the world could help save the northern white rhino from extinction. Scientists want to use frozen eggs and sperm from a dead northern white rhino and implant them into a surrogate rhino mother, hopefully to repopulate them. For more on this, we spoke to Brad Fikes. He's a reporter at the San Diego Union-Tribune about this very ambitious project. Well, Victoria is one of six southern white rhinos that are being trained to be surrogate mothers. They have been conditioned through positive reinforcement to accept all sorts of intimate probings and procedures, and that has allowed them to do a artificial insemination of Victoria and another uh, southern white rhino who is still pregnant, and this is the first uh, birth from this program. It shows the principle that you can do this type of work in a uh, southern white rhino. And the next step is to, when they get the northern white rhino embryo ready through stem cell technology, they would do the same thing and the mothers would never know the difference. The gestation period for the white rhinos are 16 to 18 months. It's quite a long time for this whole process to play out. (laughs) Yes, it is. Imagine being pregnant for more than a year, but for rhinos, it's normal. And there's all sorts of things that the zoo and collaborators have been discovering about northern white rhinos and southern white rhinos to make this work. Their their reproductive system, what hormone levels are normal, and a lot of it has never been done before, so they're doing groundbreaking science to make this possible. Yeah, and you need compliant and fertile southern white rhinos for this program. That's why they're uh, being artificially inseminated, seeing if they can carry to term so that in the future, you cross this with this other stem cell science where they're going to create embryos from these northern white rhinos, which are going extinct, and they're going to put them together. And that's the hope that they can repopulate the northern white rhino. How does that work? Well, it's proceeding in parallel. And what they started with is a cryopreserved tissue from northern white rhinos. And this is in what's called the frozen zoo which tissue banks from endangered animals that was established in the 1970s by the late Kurt Benerska, who was the father of, of science at the zoo. He brought in a lot of 
powerful science to say that if you're going to be helping these animals, you're going to have to understand what makes them tick and how they reproduce and what threats are they to them. And he foresaw that even though we can't do anything now with this tissue back in the 1970s, if we cryopreserve it someday, science will find a way to revive these cells and to create embryos from them. And we're approaching the point to where this is now actually possible. And what do they have to do with these stem cells? Because they don't have uh, just sperm and eggs. They actually have to create those from the stem cells. It's, it's very complicated. And these cells are just normal flesh from the rhinos. And they have to be kind of walked backward or reprogrammed to be like embryonic stem cells. This is called induced pluripotent stem cells. And they're being explored in humans to replace the use of embryonic stem cells. And there was a lot of promise with this. And for animals, it means that you can actually create all sorts of organs and tissues from adult tissue and including sperm and eggs. You you create them and then you bring them together. They form a fertilized egg that becomes an embryo. And then soon afterwards, you implant this into the southern white rhino, and then if all goes according to plan, you get a healthy northern white rhino baby. And some of this work has been done, I think, in mice, uh, actually been able to take uh, iPS cells, reprogram the gametes, and make embryos. But doing it in a rhino, a distantly related species, requires a lot of knowledge that we're just now beginning to see the zoo and its colleagues put together. The ultimate goal is to create a herd of five to 15 northern white rhinos that could eventually be turned, uh, returned back to their natural habitat in Africa. They say that this could take decades. Uh, that is a long process and a long project. For now, we have a new baby southern white rhino. In the future, we could possibly repopulate the northern white rhino and not lose another species of animal. So there's a lot of hope, and, and uh, it'll be interesting to follow this over the years. Bradley Fikes, biotech reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for asking me to be on. Finally for this week, a very interesting conversation with Vivian Ming. She's a theoretical neuroscientist, AI expert, and professional mad scientist. She uses technology to augment human sight, hearing, memory, and emotions. And in particular, she wants to use this tech to turn her son, who was diagnosed with autism, into a cyborg of sorts with superpowers, giving him the ability to read and recognize emotions in other people, enhancing working memory. These things could be a huge benefit to Vivian's son, but does it give him an unfair advantage? Does tech that boosts human potential change what it means to be human? Vivian joins us to help answer these questions. The first thing, to be totally fair, is I'm an old school sci-fi geek. And even when I went to grad school long ago, I would tell, you know, the other prospective grad students that I wanted to build cyborgs. And of course, they all thought I was a kook when they were probably (laughs) right. But in the years since, you know, I've had the chance to uh, do research and build companies and realize that what I actually cared about was helping people. If you look at someone like my son that can't read facial expressions the way, you know, a neurotypical person does, it, it, it's like a second language. They can learn how, but it's hard. It's effortful. What if you could build a pair of magic glasses that could read the expressions for them and even teach them how to do it? So that's the crazy kind of science fiction vision. But then I got a pair 
of Google Glass um, from Google when they were still experimenting with them. And I was able to build exactly that because I happened to have this background in both neuroscience and AI that allowed me to be exactly the kind of kooky mad scientist that could build something. You know, and it's important to me even to go further and say, I wasn't trying to cure my son's autism. Him being autistic is part of what makes him special and unique. I just wanted to give him that superpower so that he could learn the language all of the rest of us, you know, take for granted. Tell us about this system that you built called the Super Glass. As you mentioned, you were working with the Google Glass and you had previously worked on building a real-time lie detection system that would uh, recognize facial expressions uh, for people on camera and infer their emotions. Yeah, you know, my original introduction to machine learning, the core technology behind modern artificial intelligence, was working as an undergrad on this crazy CIA-sponsored project to do lie detection. So that lab actually eventually spun off and uh, now powers most of the face recognition and emotion recognition in your iPhone. Wow. But back then, it was just a wild idea. It was 20 years ago. Could we actually do this? And we could. And I was able to, for example, take that technology and build a system to reunite orphan refugees with extended family members based on faces. And then later, when Google gave me a pair of Google Glass, I thought, well, gosh, I could take the same technology and use it with that live camera. So Google Glass was kind of like a smartphone built into a pair of glasses. We were able to take the camera on that and the little heads up display, analyze people's faces, uh, essentially in real time, and then write, uh, with the case of my son, he's perfectly verbal and literate, so write the emotion uh, on the screen. So if you're looking at someone uh, that is smiling, uh, and in this case, a real smile, their orbital muscles of their eyes contract, uh, then it would say happy on the screen, uh, or it would say sad or angry or disgusted. And they can learn how to read facial expressions in natural interactions with other people. So obviously, in this case, it's not like we're directly implanting anything into some someone's brain, right. we're just taking something that my son couldn't do on his own, and giving him a little extra help. And it turns out that little extra help was enough for him to learn how to do it. I mean, that is so interesting. You mentioned it in the article. It didn't level the playing field. It just gave him a different bat to play with. Tell us a little bit about neuroprosthetics, because this is something else that you're working on also. These are probably things that are um, more in the line of what people might be thinking of, uh, implants that interface with the brain. So my particular focus is what we call cognitive neuroprosthetics. So can I literally jam something in your brain to make you smarter? Or some of these are wearable, but they actually still directly interface with the brain, changing uh, how different parts of your brain synchronize with one another. And in that place, now we're really talking about changing people, which for me is important because I'm thinking of populations of kids with traumatic brain injury, where they have profound working memory deficits, or people experiencing Alzheimer's or other forms of uh, later life dementia. And what's amazing about these technologies, as we're beginning to just recently discover, is you can change the trajectory of what it means to have a working memory deficit, to have dementia, by actually going in and changing the way the brain functions. Uh, so to give one concrete example, 
We're working with a, a startup based right here in Berkeley that is using something called transcranial alternating current stimulation. It's a little patch. You put it on your forehead and for about two hours, you're literally smarter. If anyone listening to this <laughs> is old enough to remember those old Simon games, most of us can do maybe a seven length pattern before you start to forget what comes next. So you put this on and within about five minutes, you can do a nine length pattern. So about a 20% increase in people's working memory capacity. Now at an individual level, some kid that falls on their bike or is abused by an adult in their life, or in some cases, terrible research showing poverty itself steals this kind of cognitive capacity from kids. If you could go in and throw a little patch on their head, maybe just once a week, pair it with an education intervention, how could you not? Right. And that really leads into a lot of the other stuff that you ask in this article. I mean, these are great things. These are, would be amazing things to help people with. But what about the flip side? What about people who think this could be an unfair advantage? What about, you know, if these technologies really start to advance, what about everybody else that wants to get in on this game? You know, a normal person would totally love to have a 20% better memory. Part of what you ask in your article is with these things, do we change what it means to be human? Are we crossing a line? I'm sure many people listening uh, heard about Elon Musk's recent announcement yes. that he's building a company around some of these very technologies. This is an, a, an area that Reid Hoffman, uh, the founder of LinkedIn, and um, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google and others, are starting to put a lot of money into this space, both as a matter of research, but also as a matter of uh, building businesses. You really need to wonder, do I want Facebook in my head? And what I tried to evoke in the title of uh, the essay is if I'm augmenting my son, even with well-intentioned uh, augmentations, and as a result, let's say he scores better on the SATs, well, who wouldn't want that for their kids? Right. In, in fact, exactly. if you don't augment your kids, uh, and how will they ever keep up? And that becomes a really profound problem because now it isn't simply a straight ethical choice, but because some people might want to do it, and I guarantee you there are many that already are, then in a sense, we all have to just to keep up. And it has a real threat of becoming this crazy race uh, to become something wildly different than human. I don't think you could say no to any of these because these technologies could be so crucially important uh, to people whose lives are unjustifiably hard. And yet at the same time, it is a slippery slope, uh, the most classic of slippery slopes, to become something that is wildly different than we are today. And uh, this is something we should take seriously. It's not science fiction. This, uh, five of my companies have products on the market today, and we need to think about what sort of a world we actually want to collectively live in. Vivian, it's a great essay. I suggest everybody go and read it. Uh, Vivian Ming, theoretical neuroscientist, AI expert, and professional mad scientist. Thank you very much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.